0: helpful. If you have your Bibles with you, open up Isaiah 46. Uh, We're going to continue the section in the book of Isaiah that deals with the incomparability of God. So as we look at the basically the section from chapter 40 through 46 is going to deal with this idea that that God is different from all other gods. Now there's there tends to be some confusion sometimes because of Words used for God and in English, God, you know, c- can mean the entire spectrum. So let me give you a couple of Hebrew words that uh, that we want to keep uh, kind of our hand on. One of those is Elohim. Elohim is often used of God, but Elohim doesn't mean God. Elohim uh, basically means um, something from the heavenly realm. Elohim is used of Samuel. You Remember when the witch of Endor, uh, Saul visits the witch of Endor and says, Hey, call up a spirit for me. And he calls up Samuel. You remember? Nope. Look in the Bibles there. (laughs) Samuel gets called up. And when he gets called up, the Bible calls him Elohim. Uh, Sometimes the Bible calls there certain angels, angelic uh, beings that are called Elohim. And God is called Elohim. So, Elohim is often translated God or Lord. Um, it can be a word used of a king. It can be a word used of someone with authority. But what's never used except of the Lord and his, in speaking to his incomparability, is the term Yahweh. In your Bibles, that's signified by a capital L O R D. It's called the tetragrammaton. It means, it's a consonant. It's the ancient Hebrew was written in consonants, no vowels. Uh, the vowels were, were supplied by grammar and context for, for the words. Nowadays, they do have vowels, but ancient Hebrew didn't. yah y h v h or Y-H-W-H. Why is there a difference? Because V and W is the same letter in Hebrew. In English, it's different, but in Hebrew, it's not. So Yahweh, or, or Yahweh, we say that because we're supplying consonants. Right? We either supply the consonants of Adonai, typically, and so we put the consonants, or I'm sorry, the vowels of Adonai into Yahweh, and we get Yahweh. Um, if you supply, I want to say it's, if you supply Elohim as the vowels, then you get Yehovah. So either way, you know, the concept is this is the proper name of God. So when God talks about his incomparability, and you see the word God, there's no other God like me. He's saying there's no other Yahweh. That's it. There's one Yahweh. There are other spirit beings, right? Paul would say, if, if myself or another or even an angel come to you with any other gospel, let him be what? A cursed, anathema. Right? There's only one gospel. So there are heavenly beings, right? The fallen heavenly beings we usually describe as demons. Yes? And the elect, heavenly beings, we describe as angels. But even those are very simple terms. So when we come to the section of Scripture and we're dealing with the incomparable nature of God, you're going to hear Him say oftentimes, I am it. I'm the only one. I am the only God. What He's talking about is I'm the only Yahweh. lots of Elohim, spirit beings. But there's only one Yahweh. And while Yahweh is spirit... He can be an Elohim. No other Elohim can be Yahweh. It's only one. Yahweh is it. So when we look at this section and talking about the incomparability of God, he's often going to be talking about idols, right? We're going to see idols again tonight, talk about idolatry. And and we'll spend a little bit of time on that when we get there. (coughs) But basically in 46, what Isaiah is talking about is, Look, all these other idols have to be carried around. How do you expect them to carry you around? And the, the thing that he's going to be importing into it is he's going to say, I've been carrying you, Israel, around since before you were born. I have been carrying you around and, and you haven't had to carry me. And that's going to be a concept that he builds through the poetry here in the prophecy that he lays out for us in Isaiah 46. So we want to see that. God is saying he's incomparable. Nothing else is like him. No other God, no other Elohim, nothing is like him. So he wants to know, hey, for the Israelites, how can you turn to any other when given our history, you know that I have been with you. So he's going to begin in Isaiah 46, 1 and 2 talking about the futility of idolatry. He says, Bel bows down and Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are born as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop. They bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. The idea is that they have to be carried around. They have to be ushered. Now, don't misunderstand. The people in the ancient world did not believe the idol was the God. The people in the ancient world believed that the idol was the gateway to the God. But the emphasis is on the idea that they can't even care for themselves. They can't take care of themselves. So here's a, here's a, maybe a comparable example. We have the sons of Eli... Uh, Doing what they ought not to do They take the Ark of the Covenant Which is basically the throne of God Out of the tent of meeting And they take it to battle The Ark of the Covenant was never designed to go in battle That's only raiders of the lost Ark That's not the Bible So the Ark of the Covenant goes They lose the battle The Philistines get the Ark Right. So Israel had to figure out How to get a special group of people right, To break into the Philistines And steal it back Isn't that what happened? Oh wait You don't remember the story? So they put the Ark of the Covenant, and they put it in the the temple of Dagon. Their god that they worshipped, the Philistines, was Dagon, fish god. And they put the Ark in there, and the next day when they went in, Dagon was laying on his face next to the Ark. And they thought, well, that's weird. Why is Dagon laying down in front of the Ark? So they stood him back up. The next day they come back in, Dagon's on his face in front of the Ark again. And so they stand Dagon up again. That's funny. That's weird how that's happening. And the next day, Dagon falls over and breaks. So now his head's gone. Dagon's laying down. They still don't get it. So then God smites him with, we'll be nice, and say tumors. So all the people get tumors. And some of you are wondering, why does he say be nice? Because the tumors are really hemorrhoids. That's what the word is. But... We'll call them tumors. So the people get struck with tumors, and they're like, oh my gosh, the Ark of the Covenant. We've got to get rid of the Ark of the Covenant. So they make a bunch of golden tumors, and they pile it all over the Ark, and they put the Ark on a cart, and they put some cows on it. And you remember the story? The Ark leaves, <coughs> goes back to a town outside of, of Jerusalem, and the people there, they are all happy and joyous, and then they open it. And remember, the Ark of the Covenant is the symbol of the mercy of God. If you remove the mercy of God, what are you left with? Judgment. So they open the Ark, and because they're Jews, they're not Philistines. Philistines don't know better, but Jews do. They open the Ark, and judgment falls on them. So they decide, we don't want this thing, send it to the next town. So they send it to the next town. and In the meantime, the fellow that receives it in the next town, he takes it into his barn, tells his sons who are Levites to take care of it and watch over it. And his house is blessed until the time when David comes to get it. Did God need anybody's help to get the ark where he wanted it to be? Nope. He's saying, why are you putting your hope and trust in idols that you have to carry around, that you have to move from place to place, why would you hope in them when you have the historical evidence that I am with you and I am moving and I am caring and I am doing the things that I do? Now, the two gods mentioned here, Bill and Nebo are Babylonian gods. Bill becomes the god Marduk. Maybe you've heard of Marduk before, maybe not, but he is the Babylonian hero of the Enuma Elish. So their creation epic. Uh, is is handled by Marduk. He becomes the title Bel, which later on maybe you recognize more becomes Baal. You heard of that, Baal. So Baal just means Lord. Nabu is Marduk's son. The son of Baal is Nabu. Now he's very popular in Babylon. In fact, the Babylonians start naming their children things like. Nebuchadnezzar. They start giving them parts of God, their deity's name within their name. The rulers take this upon themselves. Now, scripture is not uh, afraid to tell us what happens to these guys and what these guys are really about. In Jeremiah 50 verse 2, it says, declare among the nations and proclaim, set up a banner and proclaim, conceal it not. Say, Babylon is taken. Baal is put to shame. Merodach is dismayed. Her images are put to shame. Her idols are dismayed. So you have the Bible saying, look, these gods that they've worshipped, they have ceased to uh, be able to care for or take care of the people. They are going into captivity. They have fallen. Now Paul in the New Testament is going to tell us that that, uh, these idols are nothing. But they are gateways through which people worship demons, fallen angels. In Psalm 82, you hear God deliver judgment upon the angels that were supposed to watch over the nations. The idea is that some of those angels, fallen, uh, maybe presented themselves as gods and these angels other nations developed them, or do you really just think that man's propensity is to have a god over him and he just dreams him up so the idea at least the concept scripturally is laid out that a lot of the gods of the ancient lands were planted by fallen angels who were at one time right before the fall of angels part of uh part of god's heavenly host that God holds in derision. Now, do they have, are they gods? No. Are they Elohim? Are they angels? Yeah, they're spirit beings, but they're not Yahweh. Do they have power? Sure. Compared to you and me? Probably. I mean, what would, I think sometimes I, I guess I used to just think, well, these things just mystically happened. Or maybe they're influenced. But there's a lot of weird things that people find nowadays, No, and I think to myself, I wonder how man learned how to do that I don't know what if an angel told him what if that angel was fallen what if he showed the ability to have some power how long would it take man to worship you remember John in the book of Revelation when an angel was taking him around and showing him things, what did John do bowed down to worship him, right? Because there were some pretty intense things that, that took place. And what did the angel, what does an elect angel say? Don't do that. Worship God. I'm a, I'm a servant just like you, right? But the fallen, they're not that way. So maybe some of the background of some of the gods that we read about, right? In the Old Testament and on into the New, when Paul talks about them as demons, which is uh, Shadim, uh, uh, another way of saying, uh, what, or at least what we would consider to be a fallen angel. Maybe that's what Bel and Nabu were. But the idea is these things can't help you. They can't help themselves. In fact, if they are true beings, they're under God's judgment. That's what Psalm 82 declares. Jeremiah fifty-one forty-four says, And I will punish Bel in Babylon, and take out of his mouth what he has swallowed the nations will no longer flow to him. The wall of Babylon has fallen. Now all of these prophecies that God's giving. Before Babylon is a power. Before people are coming to Babylon for their idolatry. Because God is incomparable. He can tell them what's going to happen before it happens. Right? This is the idea. The prophetic idea that God is laying out for us. Now. You remember we had earlier, 38, 39 of Isaiah, we talked about a guy named Sennacherib Right? Remember, Sennacherib was a ruler of the Assyrian kingdom. Sennacherib is the guy who came against Jerusalem and God delivered them supernaturally. Right? You remember? Hezekiah prays, Lord, here they come. He says he's going to wipe us all out. God says, don't worry, they're not even going to be an arrow. Comes over the wall. And in one night, God takes care of them. Angel, flies through the camp, and kills 185,000. So that's what the scripture declares to us. Sennacherib goes back. But when Sennacherib conquered Babylon, historically, when Sennacherib conquered Babylon, Merodach-Baladin, which was the ruler of Babylon at that time, he organized the evacuation of the gods, where they took all the idols, and they put them on carts, And they got them out of town so when the Assyrians conquered, they wouldn't take their idols away. And if you look at what Isaiah is talking about in these first couple of verses, that's what he's talking about. Look, you have to hide them. You have to go put them on carts and take them away. Because there's no real power in those. They're not able to deliver. They are not like me. There is nothing like me. This is what God is declaring. Look at verse 3. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb even to your old age. I am He. I am Yahweh. I'm the becoming one. He's telling them listen, I carried you before you existed. Now, what does that mean? Now, let's not get too carried away. What's he talking about? Before there was a nation of Israel, did God protect what would become the nation of Israel? The nation of Israel is not birthed until they come out of Egypt. They come, they go into Egypt a family. They come out a nation. Are you with me? So when God calls Abram, and then ultimately his spirit comes upon him, he calls him Abraham, right? He adds the Ruach. To both he and Sarai. Sarai becomes Sarah. Abram becomes Abraham. He brings them out. He watches over them. He takes care of them. They They have a son. Yes, laughter. Isaac is born. And then does God watch over Isaac, right? And God finds Isaac a wife. All of these things is God saying before you were born, the nation Israel, I was carrying you, I called you out of the nations. I watched over you. He's saying, from before your birth, I carried you. Then he says, I also carried you how? From the womb. So once you're born, did God stop? He said, okay, you're on your own now? Nope, God said, I was with you when you were born. I carried you through the wilderness. I watched over you during the time of rebellion, right? You have the whole period of the, of the exodus that's that's being described. And then he says, I even carry you all the way To your old age. Now, here's what we experience it's an illustration, right, of a father carrying his son. But usually, when we carry our son, there's a point when our son maybe is going to carry us, right? But with God, there's never a point where that happens. God never reaches old age or the feebleness where he needs his children now to to care for him. Right, He's saying, I'm with you from before you were born, through your birth, to your old age. I am. It's a declaration. I am everything you need. To the gray hairs I will carry you, I have made, and I will bear, I will carry, and will save. God never runs out of his ability to be for his creation. Deuteronomy uh, chapter 1 verse 31 says this. And in the wilderness where you have seen how the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh. <clears throat> your God carried you as a man carries a son. All the way that you went until you came to this place. God saying, I, I, this is not nothing new with God to his people. I am there carrying you. Psalm 28, verse 9 says, Oh, save your people, bless your heritage, be their shepherd, and what? Carry them forever. Carry them. It's God who bears up his people. Exodus 19, 4 says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. What's God saying? I carried you. I carried you through it all. Deuteronomy 32.11 In the same way, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them and bearing them on its pinions. The idea of an an eagle teaching eaglets to fly, pushing them out of the nest, swooping down underneath them and catching them. The Lord says, this is what I did to you. I carried you. Isaiah 63.9 In all their affliction, he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. God says, look, you look at these other idols, you've got to carry them. You look at me, I carry you. I am not like them. This is what he is trying to describe to them. I'm not like them. Look, I have made you. I will bear you. I will carry you. I will save you. We are dependent upon God our whole life. There is not a moment where we reach our independence. This is the problem of the fall. What was it that Adam and Eve declared in the fall? They declared their independence from God. We will now decide what's right or wrong. How well are we doing so far? For the most part, we don't have no idea what we're doing. We're flying blind. We think we do something right, turns out to be wrong. We think we did something wrong, maybe it turns out to be right. But what we declared was our independence. I don't need you, God, to tell me anymore. But what the scripture declares to us is that we are dependent on God. We are just as dependent on him when we're older as when we were infants. We need him to carry us. Learning to be dependent on the Lord. Because he's declaring right here, for I am in every age, I am the unchanging I am. I am he. Scripture says in Psalm 71, verse 9, Do not cast me off in the time of old age. Forsake me not when my strength is spent. This is the psalmist crying out, Lord, I need you every moment of my day. In verse 18 of Psalm 71, he says, So even to old age and gray hairs, O oh God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those to come living our lives in dependence on God. It's a lesson that God's people have always needed to be reminded of. He says in verse five, look to whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike throughout history. I actually like there's a, there's a thing called, uh, Lutheran satire on YouTube. Uh, Occasionally it's funny. Sometimes it's not. Especially when they're poking fun at me. But when they're poking fun at other people, it's pretty funny. So in Lutheran satire, they have this YouTube video that discusses the Trinity. See, we are always trying to describe Yahweh, of whom there is no other being like him. And we try to use creation to describe him. And we fail every time. No matter how you describe it, you think, oh, no, I got the perfect one. No, whatever one you think you have leads into some kind of heresy. That's why there's a long, complicated definition for the Trinity. The Trinity, one in being, three in persons. Okay, that's as as simple as I can say it without getting into too much trouble. One being, three persons. This is the description that Scripture lays out for us. Now, when God says, what will you compare me to? When we say, well, the Trinity is like the sun and the heat of the sun and the light of the sun and then the sun itself. We have in some way diminished Yahweh. Because Yahweh is way bigger. We say he's like, what is it, three leaf clover. Or when we say he's like an egg. Or when we say all the different descriptions or illustrations we try to use to describe it. But what Yahweh says is there is nothing like me in all of your creation. Nothing. He is the only Yahweh. There's nothing to compare him to. There's nothing to point to. There's nothing that we can say is like him. In Psalm 89 verse 6, it says, For who in the skies can be compared to Yahweh? The Yahweh, way. who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? A God greatly to be feared in the council of the Holy Ones. Awesome above all who are around him. O oh, Lord God of hosts, Sabaoth, the angel armies, who is mighty as you? Is there any? No, Lord, with your faithfulness all around you. What's, he, what's the declaration? There is no one like Yahweh. The fact that people struggle over the idea that you can't describe Yahweh. Boggles my mind. When the Bible says there is nothing like Yahweh. But somehow in in our arrogance we are intellectual enough to figure him out. Right? So I should be able to describe him. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says you shouldn't be able to describe him. Because he's Bigger. There's nothing to compare him to. There's nothing like him. All I do is take what the Bible says. The Bible talks about Yahweh, that I am one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God. The Lord is one. You've heard that before, right? <clears throat> the word is echad, it means God is unified. People like to argue that with, all, all, with me all the time. What do you mean it means he's unified? Well, because the first time it's used in Genesis, it says Adam's, God brought Adam uh, brought Eve to Adam, and he took her and said, this is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, right? And for this reason, a man shall leave his mother and father and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become... Oh, you've heard it before. Echad. Same word for the way God is one. Now, I don't know what you're going to do about it, but a husband and wife are how many? They're one when they're married, but they're two persons, aren't they? The description, we're taking what God in his word describes himself as. Both, or all, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit proclaim that they are, created the universe because there's one Yahweh expressed in three persons well how do you do that well this is where we get to the part where there's only one Yahweh and I try to pick up an egg but it doesn't work and I try to look at the sun and it doesn't work so I just try to use what God says right here's what he says there's nobody like me I'm it there's only one redeemer Yahweh Jesus said, I am Yahweh. Anyone who confesses that Jesus Christ is Kyrios, Lord, in the New Testament, always in Hebrew is described as Yahweh, the proper name of God. Confess that he is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be. Yeah, look. This is what scripture declares. God is saying here in Isaiah 46. Nobody like me. Nobody. So the idea. That we struggle. Describing what God is like. Should not befuddle our minds. We should say there is nobody like Yahweh. Whatever he declares he is in the word he is. Period. And one day. We won't see through a glass dimly anymore. We'll see face to face. One day we won't know in part. We will know completely, right? That's what 1 Corinthians 13 tells us. We will see his face and we will understand. Well, look what he says, verse 6. Those who lavish gold from the purse, weigh out silver in the scales, hire a goldsmith. He makes it into a god. Then they fall down and worship. They lift it to their shoulders and carry it. They set it in a place and it stands there cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. What's he talking about? He says, well, look at the effort it takes to make them. Got to go through a lot of work to make them. And then they worship them, fall down and, and worship before the things they made with their own hands. Any time God becomes a part of his creation, he stops being separate. From his creation. So we have this idea. Look they, they, they were created. You made them. They didn't make you. You made them. You fall down and worship them. You lift them up. You carry them. You set them in their place. What's the result? It can't save you. It can't help you. It can't answer you. When you call. So as we look here. In Isaiah 46 we have to remind ourselves, look, Israel is feeling helpless and hopeless. And God is reminding them there is only one God, theirs, their God. And he is able. He's demonstrated to them. He's telling them the truth of what he's saying by history. Not only of what he has done, by his, but also by his ability To speak about what's going to happen through the prophets before it happens. To tell them what's going to happen before. He's saying that he stands outside of history. And he is powerful enough to impact history. He can tell you the future because all things unfold according to his purpose. So now he says yet again to them, through the prophetic word, I'm telling you the deliverer's name before he's even born. You remember what his name was? Cyrus, right? Cyrus is going to deliver you. Now the question that remains, given that God has given you this information before it happens, will you believe? That's the question to Israel. Will you believe? I'm telling you the future. I'm telling you what's going to happen. I'm telling you how it's going to look. Will you believe? Listen to what he says in verse 8. Remember this and stand firm. Or stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember all the lessons you learned about idolatry? How many times has an idol buried uh, uh, got you out of trouble? How many times have they been able to deliver? Remember, call it to mind. Remember the former things of old. Remember how I've told you things before they happen. Remember the power of God to deliver. Israel's history is a history of God's carrying them and delivering them. No? Throughout their entire time, the Lord says, Remember, remember the things of old. Why? Because I am incomparable. Look what he says I am God. There is no other. I am God. There is none like me. He is the only one able to do what he says he has done. He goes on in verse 10 declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done. I'm telling you a guy's name before his parents are born. I'm telling you he's going to turn the people loose before you're ever in captivity. I'm telling you exactly what is going to unfold in history so that you will know that you can believe me. You can trust me. I want you to understand the truth that he's declaring. He's saying, look, my predictions... Declaring the end from the beginning. My prophecies, they shall stand. Look what he says. Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. He says, every promise I ever made you, I'm going to fulfill. I'm going to stand by and do it. My purposes are going to call. Now listen, he says, I'm going to call a bird of prey from the east. Yeah. Yeah. The man of my counsel from a far country. Who's that man? Cyrus. He's already told us. Cyrus. I'm going to call him. He's going to deliver. I told you he's going to to conquer Babylon and they're not going to know it for three days. He's going to take over a nation with very little, if any, bloodshed. He's going to conquer and set the children of Israel free he says i have spoken i will bring it to pass i have purposed i will do it all god says i'm this is what i'm going to do and i'm telling you before it happens so that you know i am yahweh there is none other by which you must be saved i'm it I am your only hope. So the question remains, will you believe? Look at verse 12. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. Listen to me, you hard-headed knuckleheads. God ever said that to you? Are you listening, you who are slow to believe? Often we we think hard-heartedness is a form of arrogance or an attitude that says I don't really think I need deliverance. But it can be just as much an attitude that says I don't think you're able to do what you say you can. In the book of Hebrews it is called unbelief. The Lack of willingness to trust God. To say God is able to do abundantly above all we ask or imagine according to the power that works in us. It's true or it's a lie. If it's true, then we want to stand by that reality and say, look, I don't want to be hard-hearted. I want my heart to be pliable. I know I'm far from righteousness, but look at the next verse, verse 13. I bring near... Whose righteousness? Righteousness. Is you're not going to become righteous. You may do righteous acts once you've been clothed in Christ and empowered by His Spirit, for sure. Revelation says that the bride of Christ makes herself ready by what? Putting on the righteous acts of the saints. Well, where did we get the ability to do that? From Christ. You were regenerated. God changed you from the inside out. My propensity is not to do good. And while mankind may declare me to be good, that's not what the Bible does. What's the Bible say? The Bible says, well, some of you are good, pretty good, and so you're okay. Now, is that what it says? The Bible says, there is none righteous, no, not one. Is there a better way to say it, make that clear? None righteous. Where does our righteousness come from? God. He says, I'll bring my righteousness near." I'll bring my righteousness near. It's beautiful to see on the pages of scripture. And my salvation will not delay. He's bringing his salvation, his righteousness. Yeah. His name is Jesus. I made him who knew no sin become your sin sacrifice so that you might become what? The righteousness of God. We become righteous through Him. So here, the unbelief is focused on three ideas. Right? Is God strong enough to wrest His people from the gods of the Babylon of Babylon? Does God even want to save them, since they're a bunch of knuckleheads? And if God wants to save them, would He really use a guy as wicked as Cyrus? He's a pagan. You ever been surprised about how God does something? There was a thing in the early 70s. God did through a bunch of crack-headed hippies. It wasn't crack. It was pot. But you get the idea. Right? God did something. People said, no, that's not God. I think it was. God ever used somebody you thought he couldn't use? Yeah. He says... Will you believe? Will you trust me? Will you trust that I'm doing? I'll bring my righteousness. It will not be far off. My salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion. For who? For Israel, my glory. What's the promise? I'm near. For who? My people. What's Israel mean? Governed by God. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, 9, 10, and 11, we've been grafted in. We've been grafted in by the work of Christ to be a part of spiritual Israel, that we become a part of God's family. This thing that the Lord is declaring through Isaiah, in Isaiah 46, sounds a lot like Romans 5 8, which says, God shows his love toward us when we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. Not when you were good. When you were at enmity with God. 1 Corinthians one thirty says, And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. Because of who? Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God. Who's that? Who's he speaking of? Jesus. What else did he become for us? Righteousness, sanctification, And redemption. He said I will bring salvation near. I will bring my righteousness near. Will you trust me? For I am still. The same. Yesterday. Today. And forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father God we thank you. That we can come before you this evening Lord. We thank you for an opportunity. To study your word, to open it. Lord, I pray that it would challenge us. I pray that it would challenge us in ways maybe that that we haven't considered. And ultimately, God, our desire is to be conformed to your image. Transformed from who we were to who you want us to be. That we don't become like the world. We become like you. And we do that when we submit ourselves to your word. What your word declares... For your word is the final arbiter. The final say. It's not my job to conform it to me. It's my job to conform me to your word. So Lord, may we be a people who trust you. Who put our hope in you. Who set aside our fear and our worry and our concerns. Because we say, God is able. I always love the The prayer, the Hebrew use, it stood before Nebuchadnezzar when he said, who can deliver you from my hands? And they said, our God is able. But whether he delivers us or not, we're not ever going to bow. Man, those three Hebrew kids, they knew what was up. They trusted God. Didn't keep them from going in the fire, but it gave them company there. And they knew forevermore, I don't have to be afraid, for my God is with me wheresoever I go, and he is able. May we learn the lesson, and may we learn it well. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.